I'll try my best. Thank you. <laughs> Your best is excellent. I'm not. I'm not worried. Um, it's going to be anti-edipultastic. Well, look. Let's just let's just dive in and do it then. Um, uh, I'll kick us off, and if people join, people join. Hey there. Uh, hello. Welcome to the Deleuze and Guattari Quarantine Collective's ongoing reading of Anti-Oedipus. Uh, we continue into 4.1, as we break through psychoanalysis and schizoanalysis brings its autocritique to light. Uh, it's pretty much the paragraph we're starting on from day. We've been playing through a lot of different elements of uh, what they've been bringing to bear in the previous sections, previous chapters. Finally, we are going to get into some very pointed, specific critiques, uh, which is exciting. I don't think we have anything else to really say before we jump in, so I'll just read the next paragraph, and uh, it is a decently long one, but we'll go back through and take our time, because I have some questions, and I know we'll have a larger discussion around this, because it's some pretty important shit. And uh, which page are we on for that in uh, I am sharing the screen as well. Uh, 304. Uh, is, is what I have as the page number. It's uh, uh, paragraph beginning, consequently, the ambiguity of psychoanalysis. Thank you, sir. Um, to go back a little bit, because it's, because it's this paragraph continues the thought. Um, um, hey, try that. Oh, my God. What uh, section is this we are on? 4.2, page 304. I think it's 4.2. Is it 4.2? God damn it. I think so. It's. I think it's four point two. Yeah. Yeah, because the the uh, page number is always confusing to me because I have the shitty Bloomsbury edition. Oh yes. Well, in your terrible edition, I don't know what it is because I'm not terrible. I apologize. Try it. It's four point three. No, did we make it? We're not into four point three yet. Oh yeah, we oh. are. Oh my. Oh my god. god. Happy day, we're one step closer to finishing AO. I mean, last week it was two paragraphs took us the entire time, so I don't know about, like, literally one step closer may be the right way. I've lost track of what fucking section we're in. Jesus. We're in 4.3? Good lord. Yeah, we're, we're in the Aeon of the DGQC, right? Time passes differently here. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'll, I'll give it a read. Uh, I am sharing, if you want to watch, uh, streaming away. Mm -hmm. Uh Consequent, uh, I'll, I'll, I, I'm going to back up. It is in fact essential that the limit of the decoded flows of desiring production be doubly exercised, doubly displaced, once by the position of imminent limits that capitalism does not cease to reproduce on an ever-expanding scale, and again by the marking out of an interior limit that reduces the social reproduction to restricted familial representation, reproduction. To continue, consequently... The ambiguity of psychoanalysis in relation to myth or tragedy has the following explanation. Psychoanalysis undoes them as objective representation and discovers in them the figures of subjective universal libido, but it reanimates them and promotes them as subjective representations that extend the mythic and tragic contents to infinity. Psychoanalysis does treat myth and tragedy, but it treats them as the dreams and the fantasies of private man, homo familia, and in fact dream and fantasy are to myth and tragedy as private property is to public property. 
What acts in myth and tragedy at the level of objective elements is therefore reappropriated and raised to a higher level by psychoanalysis, but as an unconscious dimension of subjective representation, myth as humanity's dream. What acts as an objective and public element, the earth, the despot, is now taken up again, but as the expression of a subjective and private re-territorialization. Oedipus is the fallen despot, banished, deterritorialized, but a re-territorialization is engineered using the Oedipus complex conceived of as the daddy-mommy-me of today's everyman. Psychoanalysis and the Oedipus complex gather up all beliefs, all that has ever been believed by humanity, but only in order to raise it to the condition of a denial that preserves belief without believing in it. It's only a dream. The strictest piety asks, today asks for nothing more. Whence this double impression? The psychoanalysis is opposed to mythology, no less than two mythologists, but at the same time extends myth and tragedy to the dimensions of the subjective universal. If Oedipus himself has no complex, the Oedipus complex has no Oedipus, just as narcissism no narcissus. Such the ambivalence, such is the ambivalence that traverses psychoanalysis that extends beyond the specific problem of myth and tragedy. With one hand, psychoanalysis undoes the system of objective representations, myth and tragedy, for the benefit of the subjective essence conceived as desiring production, while on the other hand, it reverses this production in a system of subjective representations, dream and fantasy, with myth and tragedy posited as their developments or projections. Images nothing but images. What is left in the end is an intimate familial theater, the theater of private man, which is no longer either desiring production or objective representation. The unconscious as a stage, a whole theater put in the place of production, a theater that disfigures this production even more than could tragedy and myth when reduced to their meager ancient resources. So finally coming to their big critique of psychoanalysis as, a, as an effort. If you remember earlier, they used the phrase, and it's one of my favorites about Lacan, uh, that Lacan uh, strapped dynamite to the pylons and blew them out only to have them fall exactly in the holes where the explosions took place, uh, destroying it but leaving it standing, leaving it standing in the exact same spot. Uh, there's a... A lot of that that follows through here. So let's take it bit by bit as we make our way through. Uh, but first, any top-level questions or comments before we go bit by bit? In response to what you said about uh, Lacan, uh, do you mean that he uh, Lacan, um, you know, um, could have uh, looked like he destroyed um, the Oedipal complex by uh, structuring all the um, elements within it, like castration and, and turning all that into the um, symbolic order. Um, but, it, you know, um, you know um, some people might look at that as uh, he was the first anti-Oedipus, but in fact, he left uh, the Oedipal complex intact within the structure. But you don't... Yes. Yes, yeah. it's essentially what they're saying. that he, he ended with... The father, the phallus, the mother, uh, all of these elements still within the triad. It, you're still Oedipalized. It still is part of the setup. It behaves differently, maybe, uh, or at least we call it different things. But it's underlying still putting people in the place of, as they term it here, homo familia, the private man, the, 
the man made by his family in relation to his family, not a man as part of a larger society or milieu that is the larger social structure, uh, which is, uh, I think, actually, this section is that is a began about that uh, understanding that there is this larger social scape that we are ultimately part of. But um, instead of, and they, they say it pretty cleanly here, because psychoanalysis early on, Freud did the same thing. Freud uh, deanimated the nature of myth and took it on head on, uh, I guess you could say, versus someone like, I'm not as familiar with Jung, but I know enough to say that they didn't have the same opinion of myth. That for Freud, it was, no, no, we can't just look at myth as myth. We have to actually break it down. There's these these bits. Libido is flowing here and there and there. Now let's take myth, but actually reanimate it with this libido and actually make libido fit into the way that it works rather than actually breaking it apart wholly. And that's the line. Psychoanalysis does treat myth and tragedy, but it treats them as the dreams and fantasies of private men. It 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 moves their position, it re-territorializes them, as they talk about, from being deterritorialized as this all-powerful myth and fantasy to being put inside of private man as their unconscious, their dreams, their their drives. Uh, and that's the actually that's actually not a bad summary of this uh, paragraph. Always open for awkward silences and questions or comments. Um is there how much of this do we need to go back through? Uh, because I'm I'm happy to do it. It's it's worth asking. Because um, I actually think gave a fairly crisp response. Uh, triad, please. Triad. Uh, it's it's just hard to, to jump in because I uh, I'm not sure how they got to myth, but uh, I see where they get here because it's quite interesting uh, that that most of these uh, psychoanalytic theorists oppose this form of yeah, we have to explain everything through these personal mechanisms of a unconscious that is not collective and not material in a specific sense. Uh, and DNG arguing against this because, and that's quite interesting uh, that they argument that that mythology in that sense or myths mythology rather as the the science or the study of myths has this objective element to it and that's quite interesting because it ties back to uh, romantic theories uh, for example like Schelling but also Cassira who who picked this theme of mythology and try to explain it as a universal symbolic form something with a consciousness of its own uh, which uh, in which every human being, every individual is a part of, but ca uh, it cannot be reduced, for example, to just uh, subjective notions, uh, not to just a simple matter of poetry, not to uh, some kind of psychosis, or, or yeah, uh, like it's uh, often done in, in um, atheistic notions, very naive atheistic notions. Yeah, all these images, figures, these are just expressions of... of uh, um, psychological disturbances or people were just high or just just uh, doing a lot of poetry and then took it for granted or they tried to to explain it through a purely naturalistic uh, lens by reducing it to, to an explanation uh, of a pre-scientific society but all of these lack the the opportunity and the instruments of uh, 
taking the the dynamic process of mythology as a whole and and uh, getting to its positive moment, its productive element. Oh well, that I would even say I would I would go so far as to say they don't believe it has one. There's a the play that they, as I read it that they're making here is that um, psycho psychoanalysts at large and as Freud on through Freud wrote directly about myths. Uh, this how they come to it. Um, uh, Lacan greatly wrote about sort of that th- same thing. That to them, the idea that man believes in myths is silly, but that they're explanatory. And that when we destroy myths, what they've done is they've broken them down, but they've moved them into a different place where our dreams and fantasies are actually instantiations of those myths or play at them. Um, they're projections of the myths and developments of them that were still tied to them. But now, instead of it being like a social large thing where, uh, you know, oh, we have this collective myth that X, Y, and Z happens or whatever. Now it's been pushed inside of me as a private uh, man, a family guy uh, who's sitting around and I have this dream about X and my my psychoanalyst goes, oh, you have that dream because of this myth. And it's it's almost breaking the sh- the core idea of breaking away from that, and that's their critique is all of these things essentially now become dreams and fantasies with myth and tragedy positive as their projections, they're images, they're nothing but images. We're now playing in the space of almost pure representation, and so in the end of this, what all a human is left with, uh, as they phrase it, is the intimate familial theater, the theater of private man, no longer desiring production or objective representation, which you could say myth itself was, desiring production on the other side. Now we're not that. Now we're conscious as a stage. Now the whole theater is put in place of production, a theater that disfigures production more than tragedy and myth when reduced to ancient resources. You know, for Jung, uh, uh, he also um, sort of, um, you know, transformed the myth, you know, into uh, these archetypes and, um, you know, and these mythologies. And and they become part of the personal, you know, uh, the collective unconscious. But you have to go through, the, in order to, uh, you know, um, you know, get to that the collective unconscious, you, <laughs> you have to go within the individual, right? I would say, I mean, Jung takes it from the other direction for sure, that it's the collective that pushes into, but it's still myth. It's still images. And it's not very specifically what they're driving at here is none of this is actual production, uh, desiring production as they've outlined it, as they've been crisp about how it sort of operates. None of this is actually desire being produced in a it lived experience eminent way. Instead, all of this is images placed in the way of desire. Told desire told what it is, shown a movie in your head about, oh, here's what you actually want, and here's why, and the explanations, which then, you know, malform desire and twist it and and fuck it up. Because none of it's production, none of it produces. All of it is just images. And that's to go at their core critique of all of this. And they sort of lay it out a little bit earlier, but here it's a lot heavier. Psychoanalysis does undo objective representations. That's the thing Freud did that was really interesting. He found this subjective layer the same way that Marx or Ricardo uh, or Smith broke down how capital and 
industrial production operates by giving us a handful of abstractions from labor to value to profit to excess to uh, whatever it may be. It's the same thing. Freud gave us libido as a way for us to sort of understand that desire is this underlying thing, but then immediately turned around and went, uh, oh, and also these pieces are essentially slaves to the imagery that we're talking about because he didn't go far enough. He didn't break it down enough. Instead, he placed the myths inside of the private man, inside of me, inside of me personally. Private, private here being not just private in the sense of I have privacy, but a sort of double play when we're talking about also private property, the capitalized, alienated subject, me, the private. That's my problem now, my dreams that are now linked to something that's outside of it, but none of it produces. None of it is desire in a productive capacity. It is images telling desire what it ought to be or uh, twisting it to its will. And by that, it's the trajectory of um, almost to say the the early Kant uh, with this uh, very reasonable um, subject of apperception that is just now the the subject of the unconscious uh, that expresses uh, that expresses all of these uh, so-called images and is not anymore a part of a, of an objective process uh, through which it is formed. Uh, everything is just put into the individual. And by that, it is a very liberal view, I would say, of the of the modern subject that is um, ripped apart from every aspect of its milieu because everything is now put into it and uh, disfigured by this view of the individual that is the sole production of its own unconscious and of its own world in that sense and not part of it in a resonant relationship. And and even worse, because a hundred percent, and even worse than that is that when someone talks to a psychoanalyst and says they have desire X or they want X, immediately what happens is they're told why they want it and given an image. Let's say someone has an underlying natural desire to kill their father. For I could think of reasons. <laughs> um, I just watched a Dexter season finale as an example. Uh, say we have the desire to kill our father, we go through that process, uh, that being put into the Oedipus complex as a thing changes the entire connective structure of why that desire was created in the first place. And so it's not even, it's, it's, it's not only just that we've gone through the process of only images put and, and production being ignored, but the production that does happen gets twisted and bent and turned into, oh, you want to kill your father? You must also want to fuck your mom. And it's because you're Oedipalized. Here's the myth, by the way. Here's the reason that your dreams are projecting this way is because this underlying truth about you that you now get to know. And that not only isn't production, but it takes the production that is happening and twists and perverts it in really awful ways. They use the term disfigures very, very particularly here. A theater put in the place of production that disfigures this production even more than tragedy or myth could when reduced to ancient resources. It's a great phrase for that. Any more questions on this uh, paragraph, please? More comments? I'd love to try it. If you have another thought, I'd love to hear it because that was great. Mm, or not. That's cool. Not so far. That's cool. That's, it's, it's, you're completely right, though. That's, it's talking about the sort of Kantian take. I like that. We will continue talking about myth. 
myth, tragedy, dream, and fantasy, and myth and tragedy reinterpreted in terms of dream and fantasy are the representative series that psychoanalysis substitutes for the line of production, social and desiring production, a theater series instead of a production series. But why, in fact, does representation having become subjective representation assume this theatrical form? There is a mysterious tie between psychoanalysis and the theater. We are familiar with the eminently modern reply of certain recent authors. The theater elicits the finite structure of the infinite subjective representation. What is meant by elicit is very complex, since the structure can never present more than its own absence or represent something not represented in the representation. But it is claimed that the theater's privilege is that of staging this metaphoric and metonymic causality that marks both the presence and the absence of the structures and its effects. Well, Andre Green expresses reservations about the adequacy of the structure, he does so only in the name of a theater necessary for the actualization of this structure, playing the role of the revealer, a place by which the structure becomes visible. In her fine analysis of the phenomenon of belief, Octave Minone likewise uses the theater model to show how the denial of belief in fact implies a transformation of belief under the effect of a structure that the theater embodies or places on stage. We should understand that representation, when it ceases to be objective, when it becomes subjective infinite, that is to say, imaginary, effectively loses all consistency, unless it is supported by a structure that determines the place and the functions of the subject of representation, as well as the objects represented as images, and the formal relations between them all. Symbolic, thus, no longer designates the relation of representation to an objectity as an element. It designates the ultimate elements of subjective representations, pure signifiers, pure non-represented representatives, whence the subjects, the objects, and their relationships all derive. In this way, the structure designates the unconscious of subjective representation. The series of this representation now presents itself. Imaginary, infinite, subjective representation, theatrical, representation, structural representation. And precisely because the theater is thought to stage the latent structure, as well as to embody its elements and relations, it is in a position to reveal the universality of the structure, even in the objective representations that it salvages and reinterprets in terms of hidden representatives, their migrations, invisible relations. All former beliefs are gathered up and revived in the name of a structure of the unconscious. We are still pious. Everywhere, the great game of the symbolic signifier that is embodied in the signifieds of the imaginary, Oedipus, as universal metaphor. Ah, there's a lot said in this one. Jesus Christ, that one sentence is brutal. Imaginary, infinite, subjective, representation, theatrical, representation, structural, representation. Good Lord. Feel bad for the translator on that one. Um, anyone want to take a crack before I do? Yeah, I'll give it a shot. So this looks to me like it's an extension of, of the argument from last paragraph, right? Which is going into... Um, you know, you might say that in terms of the objective, we can think a little bit more about how the 
the connective and the disjunctive have been represented in previous soci. And now that's transitioning with capital. So that's psychoanalysis, right? This is one of the main features of capitalism, or rather capitalist socios, is the capacity to deterritorialize and decode, right? Destroy and disseminate, I think, is how they, uh, they phrase it earlier on. So what you're getting then is the move into, like, what do you get from that destruction, that dissemination? Part of the thing they're leaning into is subjectivity, right? Affects in the third synthesis, the conjunct, which is, I think, where they're getting more directly into um, the subjective. Of course, we can walk back into uh, libido's consistency and the other two synthesis. But I think for the, the purpose of right now, just focusing on the conjunct gives you this um, subjective representation, right? Because that's going to be what's simulated. That's going to be what can um, be represented, right? In the same way that Columbus can simulate a, a captain who is simulating a war. There's a way in which that itself can be placed on a stage so as to act um, through the representational. So what I see them doing here in this paragraph now is it's spanning that argument to basically say, right, how can we kind of get toward where do we see the representation of the subjective? And where they seem to be leaning into that is on one hand, they're leaning a bit more heavily into a critique of structuralism, right? And on the other hand, they're leaning more directly into, I think, um, some of the Lacanian use of it, right? Because we can see them using terms like imaginary here where now it's starting to look like, um, you know, I think of some of his classic diagrams, right, particularly S1, the phallus and that, where now the states are not only that, um, that how that affects the first synthesis, that's a, an object would represent the, the assemblage, but now it's getting to the point of which that object is now tied to your subjectivity. It represents the desires that ultimately uh, make you possible. Yeah, the stage, um, to continue with the metaphor, because I actually think it's a very good one, if if the stage is going to be able to, uh, if the stages are unconscious, the nature of that stage determines the type of play that can happen on it, in the same way that uh, not every every playhouse can do a theater in the round, not everywhere can host a gigantic, huge production. There is a nature to the theater itself and the structure of it that determines the type of play. And in the same way, when we structure and we determine what someone's unconscious is, the types of actions that can happen inside, the types of beliefs immediately close out and, and a metric ton of them. And as we get to that point and we have this hyper edipalized version of the unconscious with, uh, to your point, the Lacan even the Lacanian, but Freudian as well, the phallus, the father, the mother, the law, my position within it. Suddenly this, this universal metaphor, this shaping of all determines on its face uh, what I'm able to even uh, believe or have in my unconscious that, that doesn't immediately get twisted and uh, isn't, I would, I would even go so far as to say somewhat psychically painful to experience. Uh, the structure of it. It's, it's forced upon us. Uh, but they get into the theater metaphor in the next paragraph. It's one, I love it. The next paragraph's great. Um, is anyone super more familiar with Andre Green or Octave Minone? Um, I've read some Minone last time around. I read a little bit of Green last time around. 
still wouldn't say I'm necessarily familiar with either. Um, I'm going to assume that's a no. Um, Not beyond the footnote. No, uh, there's some very complex language in here. Um, the theater elicits the finite structure of the infinite subjective representation. What is meant by illicit is complex since the structure can never present more than its own absence or represent something not represented in the representation. Um, there's a, a lot said, so much. I don't actually think we can get through it all, and I'm not sure it's necessarily wildly important for a, a casual reading. It's worth diving in at some point, um, but it feels like not quite yet because they go on to explain so much of this uh, more at length in the following paragraphs. I mean, I think the big move there is that those are two people that seem to be criticizing this use of structure as theater, but only in the name of structure, right? So they're basically, they're criticizing the use of structure as representation, but with an interest in maintaining representation. So they're not getting to that nuts move, which is production. Yeah, and, and um, they're about to critique Althusser. Let, I'm going to jump forward to the next paragraph because I think we need to. Is there any questions on anything specifically in this that we can expand upon for anyone who's here? Please uh, take a moment. I'll uh, have a drink of water. If you have any specifics, don't hesitate. Unpaused, you can write in the uh, Anti-Oedipus chat, uh, which is in the live chat. There's a thread for Anti-Oedipus. Uh, feel free. Type away. Oh, it was no, just me flipping pages. Oh, I'll try it. All right. The, fine. the only thing I have here is uh, this this uh, letter part of the paragraph reminds me a little bit of uh, a text of of Guattari uh, where he uh, is critiquing the the postmodern notion, especially in art, where there is only this very self reflexive notion now that there is no more real production or representation of concrete issues, but uh, the, the, the sole uh, thing of art having its own, having its nose up its own ass, so to speak. And it's a, a very short text, but a very harsh critique of modern art and architecture to some extent. Because that it excludes the production of genuine subjective um entities so to speak or assemblages that's the uh it's almost the lose line as well um every artist wants to make a great painting what saves the great artists is they don't know how um they don't have that structure or understanding of what they need to produce and by actually having to discover it authentically and go through it imminently they're able to make great art so I love that. Sounds in line with what you're talking about a little bit. Brainwasher, please. Hi, I'm, I'm driven to speak because of my my uh, my interest my interest in in, in pol political affairs. Of uh, of humans, so <laughs> may or may not make sense. What I'm trying to say is, it's uh, 
It's like a, a lightning round and Jeopardy. Uh, with with a special. With, I have I possess I have in possession special abilities that that you can make use of if if you're interested. So I represent a a, a random the randomness of chaos. I'm not sure exactly how I fit in society, but I'm trying to make a case for my my brain and the, the nakedness of my my free will. I think most of us can probably empathize with that. Uh, I mean, I, I, I can. I shouldn't speak for other people. I think most of us can empathize at least at some level with that. Uh, I just need an outlet of some sort, some, some way to express my, my free, creative um, effort. I'm trying to, I, I'm trying to believe on the the main uh the main thought of of freedom through um through randomness but i'm probably I'm probably beyond beyond sense I'm probably speaking gibberish right now. I I don't think well you're not speaking gibberish. Um uh it's I, I would say it's it's fairly unrelated to the direct topic but uh also not uh entirely tangential. One of the difficulties and things that uh is underlying a lot of this, but not just this text but also uh logic of sense and the other work of both Deleuze and Guattari and and related authors is uh the the play of how um our seemingly random connections at a base level uh become repressed by the larger scale representations at large it's it's actually very much what we're discussing right now the way that uh when um i tell you how to behave i tell you how to be a good citizen i tell someone how to be a good person or what that means or to be oedipalized in the case we're discussing right here as psychoanalysts saying well, you need a better relationship with your mother because you are angry at your father because you wanted to have sex with her. This, this silliness that comes with telling a person what their beliefs are does two things. One, uh, aside from stigmatizing them and placing them into a place that may absolutely not be the case in terms of their actual experienced life. But the other thing it does is it forces and pushes a person to take their actually experienced connections, which quite can seem random. Uh, the, the reason they use the term schizo is the seeming randomness of the symbology that they may connect or the, the semiotic connections that a schizo can make 
versus uh, what we may call a, a normative person versus a hyper paranoiac who, who repeats and repeats and repeats and is very careful about saying the right words for the right representation. Once we start getting into those positions, a person's own lived experience becomes uh, uh, disfigured. Their desire piped into different directions than they may necessarily want. Uh, than actually may be what they necessarily can experience. The same way that if I dig trenches through a field in order to irrigate everything and someone comes in and simply places stoppers or uh, you know buries some of them or places pipes directing them to other farms, there's very little I can do about that. A representation does this. When someone tells me a good dad doesn't let his son do X, or if you were a good parent, you'd be sending him to school. If you were a good parent, you'd be doing this or that, taking him to church. The, the idea of the good parent, the representation, and we have millions of them. It's not just good parent. It's just a very easy one. Uh, transforms us, perverts us, changes us. Uh, when we talk, as they end the paragraph, all former beliefs are gathered up and revived in the name of a structure of the unconscious. We are pious everywhere. The game of the signifier that is embodied in the signifies of the imaginary, Oedipus as a universal metaphor. This play that is happening in this theater, this structure that is given to us about how representation is actually what's in control by nature is creating a very specific type of subjectivity, a type of you, a type of me, because by nature, the pipes of desire are put in a specific way for a theater in order to make sure they interface properly with the symbolic representations we're given. Lacan, I would say, even goes fairly explicit in this, where he talks about how desire needs to learn its its place uh, and its, its movement around and how we can manipulate desire. Uh, the common designer rhetoric, I, I come from the world of video games, uh, when you're talking about tricking people into doing things, you play with desire in very much the same way. And you utilize representations to do it the same way ads uh, and PR once did. These these things that we've played with and we very much know, especially in a post-capitalist nightmare utopia that we live in, um, the way that our own chaos and individuality get played with um, and utilized as a structure against us, as that theater, as that uh, homo habilis, as they talk about here, the, the uh, familia, homo familia, the, the family man, the, the people of the family, born of the family, where all of the world is strained through the sieves, sieves that are my parents before it comes to me, and therefore I experience all through them. That privatization of repression is very much what they're talking about here. Um, I hope I hope that uh, was a, a okay response. Um, it's a it's a tough thing. You're talking about the the nature of being atomized and alienated inside of our world, and I think everyone here uh, can identify with that. Even if some of us may seem like we're more well adjusted than others, uh, I can assure you, uh, it is not the case. Uh, so uh, thank you for the note and the thought. Uh, do stick around. You never know. Your randomness may do well for you here. We're an odd group. Um, but I think I will continue to the next paragraph, unless anyone has anything more on what I just said or what was in the paragraph before. Nope. Drew, let's I'll go. give Drew a second to type. Because uh, 
I did ramble for a bit, so I, I should give Drew a moment. Cool. Uh, I'm glad it helped, Drew. Uh, let's talk about the theater, though, because that's where we're about to go and why the theater. Why the theater? How bizarre this theatrical and pasteboard unconscious, the theater taken as a model of production. Even in Louis Althusser, we are witness to the following operation, the discovery of social production as machine or machinery, irreducible to the world of objective representation, but immediately the reduction of the machine to the structure, the identification of production with a structural and theatrical representation. Now the same is true of both desiring production and social production every time that production, rather than being apprehended in its originality, in its reality becomes reduced in this manner to a representational space, it can no longer have value except by its own absence, and it appears as a lack within this space. In search of the structure in psychoanalysis, Mustafa Sufan is able to present it as a, quote, contribution to a theory of lack, end quote. It is in the structure that the fusion of desire with the impossible is performed, with lack defined as castration. From the structure there arises the most austere song in honor of castration. Yes, yes, we enter the order of desire through the gates of castration. Once desiring production has spread out in the space of a representation that allows it to go on living only as an absence and a lack unto itself, for a structural unity is imposed on the desiring machines that joins them together in a molar aggregate. The partial objects are referred to a totality that can appear only as that which the partial objects lack, and as that which is lacking unto itself while being lacking in them. The great signifier, symbolizable by the inherency of a negative one in the ensemble of signifiers. Just how far will one go in the development of a lack of lack traversing the structure? Such is the structural operation. It distributes lack in the molar aggregate. The limit of desiring production, the borderline separating the molar aggregates and their molecular elements the objective representations and the machines of desire, is now completely displaced. The limit now passes only within the molar aggregate itself, inasmuch as the latter is furrowed by the line of castration. The formal operations of the structure are those of extrapolation, application, by univocalization, which reduce the social aggregate of departure to a familial aggregate of destination, with the familial relation becoming metaphorical for all others, and hindering the molecular productive elements from following their own lines of escape. Lack. This is about lack. This is about lack. Let's go to uh, my friend Holland. Let's go pull that guy up. Let me see what we got here. Uh, first, any comments or questions as I'm diving through and getting back to uh, some some Holland here? Yeah, this idea of lack uh, is really a major um, uh, idea from uh, Lacan, right? Is that, um, and, and Freud, but for certain, for certain, Lacan as well, yes. So for Freud, it would be the uh, the uh, the thanatos, the death instinct. I I so I I think it'll help to focus on who they're talking about more directly, right? Because I think you're right; it's Lacan and, and lack for sure. Right, lack on, um, but they're focusing on 
Althusser here, right? Mm -hmm. Because what they want to get at is, so part of it's explaining how you get lack, right? And we can talk about S1 and we can talk about um, the conjunctive um, representation or I, the connective representation. I, I want to I pull back before we get too deep into that because I want to actually talk for a second because I that's not my my understanding is they're talking about Freud here now also Lacan and also in general psychoanalysis in general and also desire as it's been seen because desire Lacan makes it explicit when he talks about his object petit ah and how desire operates according to lack but desire is always determined has always been determined in response to lack that. Desire is not a positive thing. Desire exists because you lack a thing. That you need X or you need Y. You desire something you do not have. Uh, desire is always something uh, aiming at something that is missing. Uh, that's what I understand is their overall critique. It's much more in line with Nietzsche, who Nietzsche is, again, about affirmation of desire rather than the negation of it, uh, which desire very commonly plato did this like this is it's not some new thing the idea of desire sort of being driven by lack lacan's version is hyper like fucking here is pointing at it but it's been implicit and it was fairly explicit even for freud that like lack i think specifically lacan's thing is that lack produced desire but desire has always been in terms of lack like that's not a that's not new to Lacan. Lacan is uh, lack is uh, mainly derived from the castration um, complex. Um. Okay, so uh, I don't see Ken in the room. If we have someone here who can explain it, uh, who really knows Lacan, I'll give it a second uh, before I dive in with my tertiary understanding. Because um, my, my version only involves lack as the uh, nature of the object petit a produced during the uh, breastfeeding of a child, basically, is, is the example Lacan uses. But um, I'll give everyone a second if someone knows it better than me. But of course, lack itself is, you know, it's mentioned even by Hegel. It's, uh, it is really, uh, you know, it, it's, um, it's part of desire, right? Uh, it's inherent to to the life process itself. When you're out of balance, you're hungry, you're thirsty. You know, there's a lack there that you want to return. That's 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 the the way going all the way back to Plato that it's been thought of that desire and lack are intertwined. Sure. Uh, Lacan went out of his way specifically that lack produces desire, like that. That's the switch he made. Uh, that that lack is actually the productive force, um, uh, and that desire is made by it whereas prior to that they sort of were intertwined it's not one that made another but that they came sort of at once or that they were always uh, part and parcel of each other their play is much more in line with nietzsche who's like no no it's lack like doesn't really exist as a thing like nothing lacks anything desire does not lack anything uh, it doesn't like aim at, oh, I don't have that. Desire wants that because I don't have it. That's representational. Uh, to, to quote very specific, uh, if desire produces, its product is real. If desire is productive, it can be productive only in the real world and pr produce only reality. The objective being of desire is the real in and of itself. 
that that play is what they're getting at here. They're hyper critiquing this idea of lack. It's necessary. The theater does this by creating the representations. We have elements by nature that don't have it. If I, um, I grow up and I'm told I need to have a happy uh, life. In my head, the representation that's created of success and a happy life is a white picket fist, wife, two kids, dog, cat, uh, you know, sunny day out, all of that, all of those things, but it's still not a whole image, but that representation by nature doesn't encompass actual lived experience. As such, when I'm actually in the, the moment of being able to be comparative, lack is created. That's where lack comes from. Lack is produced by the interaction with representation, but the, the missing pieces, but we don't actually have lack producing in an imminent real way. It's uh, the, the phrase they use, I think at some point is uh, imaginary compensation uh, for what has been taken from it. Uh, what's the line? Uh, uh, only yeah, secondarily and- is it made as a result of social organizations, which deprive certain people or classes of their objective being and the fruits of their labor. Does productive desire become reactive and construct a parallel world of gratification? called fantasy, sometimes heaven, as imaginary compensation for what has been taken from it. To the extent that psychoanalysis subscribes to the notion that desire is based on lack rather than on force, D&G consider it a reactive slave psychology. Under the cloak of the psychoanalyst, as Nietzsche might say, they smell a priest. And that's the line that they have at the end here of the previous paragraph where they say, uh, all former beliefs are gathered up and revived in the name of a structure of the unconscious, we are still pious. Uh, Nietzsche said, I still smell a priest. There's a, they're very much hearkening back to Nietzschean sort of uh, conception of energy and passions. Sorry, Trad, please. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, because uh, when we talk about this lack and pose it as the, the prior thing to desire, we have this negative de- definition of desire, that there is always something lacking that has to be uh, posed at some point, maybe by the priest, you lack God, you lack enough faith, you lack money, you lack material possessions, and so on and so on. And uh, your desire then is never really uh, uh, a thing of your control. And that's uh, something that that shackles you. And here, uh, Deleuze and Guattari try to turn it on its head so desire is that which comes first it's not this this lacking thing it's not the 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 force of anatos of uh, of this death drive of this constant repetition that is not producing anything new but it is uh, desire is a, a a force of eros it's the expanding force it's uh, in its machinic way it's com uh, it's combining elements uh, and uh, and flows together to produce new things, to affirm something and produce, create, be poetic in that sense, in a very uh, Greek term, uh, poiesis, that it's producing not only itself, but it's producing something new in that extent uh, and is not the, the slave of an opposed goal or a lack that needs to be achieved. And that's why they uh, write here, Uh, that this machine or machinery is irreducible to the world of objective representation, Vorstellung. But immediately, the reduction of the machine to structure, and structure is something that is in structuralism, only defined by a negative notion, so by the 
difference to other aspects in the structural relationship. It's never um, defined in a positive way through its own imminence, so to speak, or through its revelation uh, to someone. Uh, the identification of production with a structural and the uh, theatrical representation darstellung so it's just the darstellung the representation the image or the 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 pointing to this lack then and not really a positive thing anymore but only this shadow of an imposed uh desire uh lack of something so they're defining um lack as a as a positive um you know repetition of um of difference right in this theater, uh, in this no, the theater. desire is the the positive uh, form of repetition and of combining things in a machinic yeah. way. Desire is right. the negative form. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So, so desire in this, um, you know, repetition of becoming is the uh, is the uh, the repetition of desire as a as the um, as the difference um, the difference which uh, which leaves and something behind. You know what is. Uh, what has changed behind and and continues forward, yeah, in a, in a flow, right? Yeah, I would say so. I just to add in because it's it's one of my I always go back to Holland. He's got some very nice sharp lines that I think explain, and it's one of these. Desire is first and foremost productive force. What it produces is simply the real world. It's uh it's pretty easy, but. Uh, pretty tight little sentence. I like that. Right. So this productive force he's talking about is really the, um, you know, power that uh, originally uh, um, Spinoza actually um, derived from uh, Hobbes that the idea of power, you know, force is is uh, is the real, the primary thing. Um, this desire is a kind of a, a power. Uh, that's different from, uh, you know, different from looking at uh, at the human being in terms of essence, where you miss that, that uh, you know, force. Yeah, and there's I, a there's a thrust with it, a hundred percent. It's um, um, I've I've tried not to use libido because in American parlance, it's kind of been again perverted and not its original meaning. Uh, passions. Uh, yeah, there's passion. a reason that d desire is a sexual force. He doesn't mean that everything's about fucking. He kind of does that. Everything is connecting, disconnecting. Uh, that there is a, a thrust behind it as as a, a positive element, and that kind of interplay of everything that this is the base energy that is causing connections, disconnections, movement, all of this, and then flows upwards. But at some point, we have this stage that's set for us that oh, you can only do these things, and so desire has to find a way to fit into that play. And it's the awkward moment. If you can imagine desire as the awkward man in the audience who the magician says, come on upstage. And you're like, what the fuck? Why am I here? What's going on? Yeah, you get to stand here. And now how do you behave? What do you do? And it's, you're not freely moving around the stage. You're not doing what you think you ought to. You're not checking the hat for stuff. You're not lifting up the cloth on the table. You're frozen. It's, it's that same thing. How do you connect? You don't know because you have to fit into the role given to you. You have to do these things that's ordered from above rather than sort of your natural passion, desire-based instinct. Like that, your desire as it flows in these connections, these machines hit this unconscious stage that you've set for them. 
the nature of the structure itself determines how they are going to behave. It's not even, uh, it's not even necessarily what's on the stage that matters. It's the structure of the stage itself that the stage even exists uh, and right. how it exists. And, and this also mirrors then uh, Deleuze's own critique, I guess it's um, without Gattari, of the organism as something that is opposed on these machinic processes. So for Deleuze, the organism or the organs uh, in general are the enemy because they impose a predetermined structure or function on these processes. So he doesn't want to think something as... Uh, an organism because we are just thrown in this uh, cha almost chaotic productive force of the body without organs uh, with which the machinic is connected uh, on this very thin line of uh, production or destruction of their own uh, machinic processes i'm going to expand on my analogy of the magician on stage calling on the desiring machine i i, I, I if you haven't been in that awkward position uh, it, it works actually <laughs> it's cause it sucks. It sucks. It sucks. Don't ever have, if you're ever a magician, don't call on someone that doesn't want to be up there. Like that's not cool. It's just not cool. Um, uh, um, but, uh, before I move on, uh, because I think we can, at this point, we've kind of described all the big stuff within this, um, any, any last bits? Before we move on to Andre Green and uh, the next play here. When Andre Green looks for the reasons that establish the affinity of psychoanalysis with the theatrical and structural representation it makes visible, he offers two that are especially striking. The theater raises the familial relation to the condition of a universal metaphoric structural relation, whence the imagery, place, and interplay of persons derives, and inversely, the theater forces the play and the working of machines into the wings behind a limit that has become impassable. Exactly as in fantasy, the machines are there, but behind the wall. In short, the displaced limit no longer passes between objective representation and desiring production, but between the two poles, between subject, between the two poles of subjective representation as infinite imaginary representation and as finite structural representation. Thereafter, it is possible to oppose these two aspects to each other, the imaginary variations that tend toward the night of the indeterminate or the non-differentiated, and the symbolic invariant that traces the path of the differentiations. The same thing is found all over, following a rule of inverse relation, or double mind. All of production is conducted into the double impasse of subjective representation. Oedipus can always be consigned to the imaginary, but no matter, it will be encountered again, stronger and more whole, more lacking and triumphant by the very fact it is lacking. It will be encountered again in its entirety in symbolic castration. And it's a sure thing that structure affords us no means for escaping familialism. On the contrary, it adds another turn. It attributes a universal metaphoric value to the family at the very moment it has lost its objective literal values. Psychoanalysis makes its ambition clear. To relieve the waning family, to replace the broken-down familial bed with a psychoanalyst couch, to make it so that the analytic situation 
is incestuous in its essence so that it is its own proof of voucher on par with reality. And that is not an unintentional capital reality there. The move of the stage and the unconscious here that they've been the last couple of paragraphs, what we've been talking about today here, they're describing something really interesting that happens in the way that we're able to sort of look at reality or how our understanding operates. Whereas in the space of, uh, Let's go way back, myth and tragedy, long ago. The space of myth and tragedy, again, they talk about this in the earlier chapters on the different soci as well. Sociuses, um, where once you would have my own experience, my lived experience, uh, working opposite that of objective representation. Uh, as they say, the displacement limit no longer passes between objective representation and desiring production, which is myth and lived experience. But now with this new thing placed, this structure of this stage in my unconscious, now I'm no longer looking at, is it it the larger myth of society or is it me? I'm now looking within myself and I'm looking on one side at the structure of my unconscious, how it's built, and then what my unconscious is showing me, but I'm bouncing between them and I'm using one to diagnose the other and vice versa, rather than spend time actually thinking through the larger myths or myself. And this is one of the really beautiful uh, elements. They, again, refer to the double bind here, just incredibly insidious and kind of beautiful in its machinations way that representation plays with us, especially in the modern society as the psychoanalyst and not just psychoanalyst, but across the board, we're told our dreams mean things, our fantasies mean things. This is not just Freud or Lacan. This is normal common parlance. As I like to say, it sounds like old timey talk, but that's because this book was written then. You could write the same shit today and I can name you pop culture figures who identify in these same ways and talk about this shit. This is ingrained into us, especially in America. But the the switch is no longer me or myth, my lived experience or myth, but now me going between, oh, well, I want X or Y. Well, why do I want that? What is the structure that gives me that? How is my stage built? Well, then I'll look at it through this, and it's I'm now bouncing between those rather than these large-scale things that I'm able to analyze. And that is a hell of a play. As they say, it's a sure thing that structure affords us no means for escaping familialism. On the contrary, it adds another turn. It attributes a universal metaphoric value to the family at the very moment it has lost its objective literal values. Uh, It's all subjective moving around, and we're using subjective to measure subjective. Uh, I really like this paragraph a lot. Uh, I'll open up, please. Uh, I love this critique of Andre Gray. I love the thoughts here. I'm open. Uh Sounds like he's, uh, you know, uh, referring to Lacan. At the same time, is he also critiquing and, you know, disagreeing with Lacan? You know, that oh, would... certainly, certainly. Yeah, yeah. Mentions, you know, symbolic, uh, you know, the imaginary Oedipus and the symbolic castration. So those, yeah. It's a critique in, in general of psychoanalysis. He's got a couple lines in there that are very much intended to be like a zing, zing because it's, again, Guattari studied under, <laughs> under, under Lacan. 
And so there's a lot of little lines in here. I, someone went through them. I can't remember what, what I was reading. Uh, someone went through and like found all the little zingers and was talking about why like, cause they're just little things that like almost if Lacan was reading it, he's the only person who'd go Ugh, every time he read just these little notes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> At the same time though, you've got to be careful because they're not saying they're not exactly saying Lacan's incorrect either. But they are getting at a point, which is that this use of, this is what I mean with like the Freud and that, you know, the thing Freud and Jung don't have is structuralism. Um, that comes later, and that's the big move here is that, I said in a previous session, you know, you can kind of understand that with like Jung being interested in the numinous and, you know, and the representation, all right, that kind of classical Kantian move, right? Um, and similarly, something like that might be applicable to Freud. It's more tension and release with him, but tension and release kind of with an Oedipal condition, right? To kind of keep a Kantian term. What I see happening here then is that what gets augmented now, because you can read Freud in a structuralist lens, and this is kind of Lacan's contribution, um, but the thing that they're saying that Lacan doesn't exactly get is this stuff going on with the imagining the symbolic and the way that that, rep that that is supposed to show us subjectivity is actually the representation of the unconscious. And that goes even further because what they're laying out in this paragraph is what that representation does, right? How it affects things. And so this is kind of the move is like, they don't necessarily say Lacan's, you know, full of it, but they are saying what you're talking about is something that psychoanalysis does in service of capital, right? And that thing is to create a more or less a, a deductive relationship by which the familial now is a, simula uh, a simulated representation, right? Allows for this uh, support of the imaginary. They get at the erection of the imaginary that um, perhaps Lacan might not be able to articulate as well. So I actually like augment some of his theory. Yeah, he, he makes it, uh, he augments it by making the, um, the, the unconscious part of the symbolic uh, structure as well. And so uh, he's like uh, using the language of Freud and Lacan to, to, to make this critique of both of them. But he's also, <laughs> you know, Defining for us what he uh, what his his ideas are through these uh, the use of um, of their language. Yeah. Well, I mean to say they're explaining how the imaginary gets erected, right? So it's not something. I mean, yeah, there's like that mere stage stuff, but what they're getting at more specifically is how the imaginary would get erected in the social, in the social, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, I would, I would even say it goes, uh, the step more that they're talking about here even is that, and this is very much directed at Lacan and the contemporaries of when this book was written in the psychoanalytic field. Um, it was already clear that the familial was in breakdown. We've been seeing this through our lives. This is not some new weird thing. Um, but very specifically that they're saying that it's not just so much that capital has utilized the familial to train us and to build us into Oedipalized citizens, 
But now the, edip- the psychoanalyst takes up the call. Uh, the line, psychoanalysis makes its ambition clear to relieve the waning family, to replace the broken down familial bed with the psychoanalyst's couch, to make it so that the analytic situation is incestuous in its essence, so that it is a, its own proof or voucher on par with reality. And that's that shitty line. I'm, I'm going to grab that footnote, but uh, just want to make sure I got that point in there. Right, because the representation is breaking down, but at the same time, that's part of the point because that's in the, you know, this is the representation of flots, right, of dx and dy. But that, that's that's your, that's where you get the two subjective poles, right? Is you've got the representation breaking down on the stage, right? But you've also got um, kind of this point about the structure we're seeing here, right? Which is to put the machines behind the wall. Which is where if you, you know, you go back to those famous diagrams, right, where they talk about the breakthrough, you know, it connects so nicely here because in a sense, you can kind of read as they're talking about it, there's a few things you can do with it. One of the things they're talking about is a breakthrough of the stage to the factory, right, to the unconscious, to the body without organs, Uh, to also say, because uh, Jean-Claire uh, wrote, it's worth stating, uh, when Jungians and Freudians analyze dreams, uh, the royal road to the unconscious, the analogy for the dream world is the theater. The dream maker is God's self. The dreamer is all the figures in the dream. Uh, which is spot on. Uh, that's, uh, when, you do, when you see how people do dream analysis, that's just basically it uh, very much. Great line. So the so there are the dreamer uh, dreaming his dreams is really uh, you know within the um, within the domain of the symbolic order all the time, but at a level of representation, right? Right. Right. So yeah, the dreamer, again, that's right. The dream is just part of that machinery, uh, uh, you know, in the uh, right in that symbolic order. Mm-hmm. Right, as a structural reduction. Right, that's like the move without those errors to say like we're getting this machinery. Psychoanalysis lets us do this, right? But it does so with a reduct, and this is of course like because of like Lacan and that, right? These, or at least because of that rubric of stuff going on in France at this time. So as you're moving through and you're getting the the the, you know, the molar if you like, uh, I'm sorry, the molecular if you like, you're then reducing it down to the structural. Right, so to your point, the dream becomes a reduction of what's going on. And then we get at the structure, Jan Claire and, and Brits are getting that, right? You have the totality that represents what's happening. Right. Jung, right? Jung's, uh, Jung's uh, structure uh, pretty much does the same thing with uh, dreams, right? He's uh, interpreting everything within those um, confines of the archetypes and mythologies. And, right? he, from what I've, you know, my reading and talking with Ken, Jung realizes that there's a representational element. And he's upfront about that because he thinks the numinous, you know, the numinous is like the religious, right? That unrepresented um experience or thing. Uh, so he knows that he's working with representations on that. 
he's facilitating a kind of tension and release of the numinous to the representation, right? And this is where your active imagination kind of comes in because you're facilitating on one hand an experience, on the other hand, uh, a representation. But after that comes the use of structuralism, right? Where now you have a whole new modification to the way psychoanalysis works, which is where you get like Lacan in that, right? He's not critiquing uh, Jung as much as he's critiquing Freudian. Uh, because uh, Jung doesn't place so much importance on the Oedipal complex. That's just one of perhaps one of the archetypes, but it's not the primary one. So he's probably not as critical of Jung as, as uh, he is of the other two. Yeah, I mean, they, that's kind of what Brutz says, right? Like they make strides, but then they don't. Every stride they make, they don't necessarily go far enough, or they risk the problem of then edipalization, right? Exactly right. Yeah. So Jung is probably not uh, one of his targets of criticism, uh, you know. Perhaps Jung, uh, you know, gets a pass on this one. <laughs> no, Jung, uh, Jung is very much a target. I, I will say... Jung is very much a target. It's just less important, especially because Guattari is who he was. Um, the sort of nature of putting Lacan first, I would say just in general, we're, we got to remember the contingent reality of the book. It came about in critical theory, psychoanalytic circles in late 60s, early 70s, France. Um, not what I would call Jung's strongest place, whereas Lacan was absolutely like super celebrity at the time um as far as like you know psychoanalysis is concerned so um there's a lot more responses to the things that they were very much up against but it's it's absolutely still a a, a critique of jung it's a little bit more clear in some places than others um uh, but for certain a lot of this definitely comes from that um yeah to to your point part of the difficulty is jung so after the break with Freud and that, with the founding of the analytical um, school, with the founding of death psychology, Jung kind of stops considering himself as, or at least the, that kind of practice stops being considered psychoanalysis. So it's, it's contrastable with schizoanalysis in some ways, because they both have an engagement with psychoanalysis, but the Jungian school is kind of moving somewhere else still from psychoanalysis, but they're in like their weird own ter territory. Yeah. I was just wondering if uh, how Jung's, um, you know, particular perspective is, uh, is stands outside of uh, the, uh, the capture of uh, the capitalist socius, you know? Because I think uh, it seems like the critique of uh, Lacan and Freud is that they were, you know, the, the theory is based on the Oedipal complex. Um, and as I said, Jung's uh, uh, system doesn't put that much emphasis on the Oedipal complex. No, but as, as Jean-Claire says, uh, he still plays very much with the projection of the parents onto the analyst. There is still very much a play towards uh, I wouldn't say uh, the, the play that they're talking about a little bit earlier, they refer to it as kind of this objective 
symbology? What's the exact phrase they use um, when they talk about the two poles? Um, objective representation. Um, objective representation would be much more the sort of classic myth, how, how myth classically is handled. Their move into subjective representation is far more what Jung and others push towards. So I, I, I don't think I would say I'm, I'd let Jung kind of get away with being free from this critique. I think it very much comes to that. But they're hardcore going after Lacan and the Freudian tradition, especially of the time. But it's all, psychoanal- all psychoanalysts, because ultimately, no matter who we're talking about, all of these psychoanalysts and how it's done uh, take money from a person to sit on a couch and be told what their problems actually are and what they truly believe. That's all of it. But it doesn't matter kind of what tradition. That's, that's even non-psychoanalyst thing, like work. Like This is what they do. Very often, they go even what you might call psychologists or empirical, you know, positivist types who just want to deal with the patient from a medical or chemical standpoint, still talk about relationships with parents and, and your relations to them and being healthy as you deal with the world. They're all still doing the same shit. It's just slightly different words for it. But ultimately, again, it doesn't matter because the, the shift is that has been done by giving us this unconscious, which is used across all of these things, that somehow is separate from those objective myths, the objective representations that are at large societal sort of concepts like the you had hundreds of years ago versus my own desiring production. We've mushed into the middle where now we have these subjective representations versus the structure that makes them. And I have to analyze the subjective representations because this is now how we speak with the structure that we've given ourselves to do it with, we are effectively trying to treat poison with the bottle it came in and then wondering why we can't get away from that. And that's kind of across the board how they're referring to all of the psychoanalytic sort of profession here, that one relates to the other, relates to the other, and you can't get away from it this way. We actually get really good to that right here because one of the things that's underlying this that the next paragraph talks about is uh, there's an, the, the issue that they have is that we've, now that we've passed by these, el- these elements of objective representations, we've moved past mythology, what, how, how do we still believe in them? Like how, how does Lacan, after saying, and very clearly saying that absolutely no one's, no one's, ed- like, no one's actually wants to do these things, these are just the symbolic versions of those things that a person relates to. You're like, why do we still believe in this? Why are we still pious? Uh, again, to refer back to the Nietzschean quote, I'm, I'm going to dive to the next paragraph because I think it explains. It also has my favorite line in the book. If you aren't familiar with Archie Bunker, you should be. Archie Bunker is a fascinating sitcom character in the history of Americana. Uh, I'll explain. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, that, um Kind of what you said that Jung has been known to tell patients that if uh, if they you know uh, actually went back to their belief in God uh, they they wouldn't have this uh, you know these kind of problems psychological problems uh, you know <laughs> nice <laughs> nice so it's like yeah so this is just, this was uh, you know like what you were saying that they're just um, involved in a practice where they take money from 
uh, people and then tell them, give them advice, you know? Yeah. See, and, advice. <laughs> and it's stuff that none of these people really believe because they also aren't dealing with representation. It's not like they're some special class psychoanalysts. They also aren't dealing with objective representations themselves. They're produced subjects just like the rest of us. So uh, in the final analysis that is indeed what is at issue, as Octave Manoni shows, how can belief continue after repudiation? How can we continue to be pious? We have repudiated and lost all our beliefs that proceeded by way of objective representations. The earth is dead. The desert is growing. The old father is dead. The territorial father and the son too, the despot Oedipus. We are alone with our bad conscience and our boredom, our life where nothing happens, nothing left but images that revolve within the infinite subjective representation. We will muster all our strength so as to believe in these images from the depths of a structure that governs our relationships with them and our identifications as so many effects of a symbolic signifier, the good identification. We are all Archie Bunker at the theater, shouting out before Oedipus, there's my kind of guy. There's my kind of guy. Everything, the myth of the earth, the tragedy of the despot is taken up again as shadows projected on a stage. The great territorialities have fallen into ruin. But the structure proceeds with all the subjective and private re-territorializations. What a perverse operation psychoanalysis is where this neo-idealism, this rehabilitated cult of castration, this ideology of lack, culminates. The anthropomorphic representation of sex. In truth, they don't know what they are doing, nor what mechanism of repression they are fostering, for their intentions are often progressive. But no one today can enter an analyst's consulting room without at least being aware that everything has been played out in advance. Oedipus and castration, the imaginary and symbolic, the great lesson of the inadequacy of being or of dispossession, psychoanalysis as a gadget, Oedipus as a re-territorialization, a retimbering of modern man on the rock of castration. Easily my favorite paragraph in this section, not even a slight bit, the Archie Bunker line, uh, Archie Bunker uh, conservative, angry American par excellence. So Deleuze was really fascinated with American culture. Uh, I think we all are a bit, but uh, that idea, there's my kind of guy. It's my kind of guy. Um, such a good image. The line here that I think matters, if there's one spot to focus on, it's the last bit uh, where they say, no one today can enter an analyst's consulting room without at least being aware that everything has been played out in advance. That's an amazing statement. Uh, factual, also. Uh, again, to go back to just general, I don't want to say bad, but average to middling uh, psycho, psych, psychoanalytic help, uh, uh, psychological help, whatever it may be. There is a process that is presumed. These things have been thought through. People have done this. They've already decided what you are and what you need to be and how you need to be before you go in there. The the only dance that is left to do is not something new, is not something for you. It's not something interesting, but instead for you to learn the proper steps to do alongside the psychoanalyst. Your job is to do 
what the psychoanalyst wants. You're the one who has to mold yourself to the things that have been played out in advance. We are already aware of everything that is wrong with you. Of course we are. That's why you're coming to us for help. Now give us money. Excellent. Be on your way. I'm about to do it again. There's a very intentional industrial model that they're trying to evoke here that comes to mind, at least for myself as well. Um, that's the, the sentence that nails this one. I love this whole thing. We lost our beliefs, the preceded way of objective representations. Earth is dead, desert growing. Such great, great imagery. Please, uh, comments, questions, anything? Yeah, I, I think we've got to be mindful of this move, though, because they're, they're getting at the unconscious of the institution, at the, the unconscious of psychoanalysis, right? And you get that with, in truth... I will have to answer that after this comment. In truth, they don't know what they are doing, nor what mechanism of oppression they are fostering, for their intentions are often progressive. And, I, and, and, and to your point, then they continue with the passage you read, which is what, you know, there's a, there's a diagram in place for this. But I think that move there is to get at this point because this is part of the mass phenomenon, I think. This is where you're getting that sense of you know, I, I think about a lot of our, our discourse in the U.S. and that, where the intentions do seem progressive, right? Um, and the intent and this intentionality, this conscious um, aspect of it, does seem appealing. But from where it's coming, right, that which is kind of um, uh, making it possible, that aspect of what's unconscious behind it, that's going to sort of put it into place. That's a different story, right? There's a whole way in which the represent, you know, and this is where like the imaginary and symbolic kind of play in a bit. Um, those representations and that use of structure create it so that it's possible for that kind of pre-conscious move where the progressive appears to be truly progressive. And yet on the other hand, it is actually an instrument of, um, of repression, right? It, it is born of um, representation. Now, uh, I'm going to probably dive to the next paragraph. Uh, here we go uh, directly at our friend Lacan. Um, bless the snarkiness. The path marked out by Lacan led in a completely different direction. He is not content to turn like the analytic squirrel inside the wheel of the imaginary and the symbolic. He refuses to be caught up in the Oedipal imagery and the Oedipalizing structure, the imaginary identity of persons and the structural unity of machines, everywhere knocking against the impasses of a molar representation that the family closes round itself. What is the use of going from the imaginary dual order to the symbolic third or fourth, if the latter is by univocalizing, whereas the first is by univocalized? As partial objects... The desiring machines undergo two totalizations, one when the socius confers on them a structural unity under a symbolic signifier acting as absence and lack in an aggregate of departure, the other when the family imposes on them a personal unity with imaginary signifieds that distribute, that vacualize lack in an aggregate of destination, a double abduction of the orphan machines inasmuch as the structure applies to articulation to them, inasmuch as the parents lay their fingers on them. 
to trace back from images to the structure would have little significance and would not rescue us from representation if the structure did not have a reverse side that is like the real production of desire. Whew. Whew. That's a lot. Um, the second half's to me, the brunt of this meaningfully that you can pull stuff from. Uh, as partial objects, desiring machines undergo two totalizations. Uh, where they're made whole, they're made into things. Uh, remember, desiring objects are all partial objects. Desiring machines are all made of them. How do we turn them into totalizing things? Uh, the first, <clears throat> when the socius confers on them a structural unity under symbolic signifier, acting as absence and lack in an aggregate of departure. Uh, oh, no worries, Jack. Have fun. Good luck with things. Hope you're okay. Um, uh, on one side, uh, you have this first one. When the socius gives this unity under symbolic signifier, acting as absence and lack in an aggregate of departure. Good fucking Christ. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to explain this more simply than there, because this is such a complex way of saying it, but I don't know if I can. No, Jack, go, go. Anyone want to take a crack? Yeah, the, the subjectivization of the, uh, is done by the socius on one side, and then also uh, at the same time um, <clears throat> being structured by the family uh, on the other side. Well, actually, that is a simpler way of putting it. That's fair. I don't understand what the word vacualize means. Vacualize, oh, choice to, yeah, okay, making a vacuum. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a, yeah, a, a little sort of mini vacuum. Um, yeah. It's enforcement of the lack. Or supplementizes the lack. It 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 um, so lack is kind of a lack is produced like anything else. The 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 essence within this is that when we vacualize lack, it's not that lack is some larger big thing, but that lack actually takes up space. It's actually if desiring machines, if you think of all of it as like production and it's producing blocks, the same is true of lack. It's just it's a vacualized lack. It's a lack in a box, for lack of a better word. But it's like the, these these elements are produced, and so um, it vacualizes lack in an aggregate of destination. Uh, yeah. The lack at large vacualized becomes this this goal, this thing that oh we must have. Um, uh, on the other side, you have the double of and all of this with the family. Yeah, it's yeah. spot on. Um, a double abduction of the orphan machines in as much as the structure applies its articulation to them in as much as the parents lay their fingers on them. Yeah. It's, a, it's great. Yeah. It's like, it's like adding more lack to the lack. <laughs> I mean, there's, not, there's nothing there in the first place, but it's adding more of that nothingness, right? <laughs> yeah, and he says the, uh, the structure applies its articulation to them going one direction. To go back, to trace back from images to the structure would have little significance 
and would not rescue us from representation, and then in italics, if the structure did not have a reverse side that is like the real production of desire. Uh, that's kind of their point as we go back. There's a reverse side. I feel like I just need to keep reading. Uh, before I do, please comments because I really want to just dive into the next one. Because it's more non-human sex, which is great. We should all have more non-human sex. And I don't mean that sarcastically. I also don't mean have sex with your car. That's not what it means. Uh, All right, I'll continue. Uh, This reverse side, uh, the structure did not have a reverse side. This reverse side is the real inorganization of the molecular elements. Partial objects that enter into indirect syntheses or interactions, since they are not partial in the sense of extensive parts, but rather partial, like the intensities under which a unit of matter always fills space in a varying degree, the eye, the mouth, the anus as degrees of matter, pure positive multiplicities where everything is possible without exclusiveness or negation. Syntheses operating without a plan where the connections are traverse, the disjunctions included, the conjunctions polyvocal, indifferent to their underlying support, since this matter that serves them precisely as a support receives no specificity from any structural or personal unity, but appears as the body without organs that fills the space each time an intensity fills it. Signs of desire that compose a signifying chain, but that are not themselves signifying and do not answer to the rules of a linguistic game of chess, but instead to the lottery drawings that sometimes cause a word to be chosen, sometimes a design, sometimes a thing or a piece of a thing, depending on one another, only by the order of the random drawings and holding together only by the absence of a link, non-localizable connections, having no other statutory condition than that of being dispersed elements of desiring machines that are themselves dispersed. It is this entire reverse side of the structure that Lacan discovers with the O as machine and the O as non-human sex, schizophrenizing the analytic field instead of oedipalizing the psychotic field. So, actually a really crisp sort of interesting way to go about explaining Lacan's play. It's interesting. Big O, little O, uh, big deal there, actually. Um, but yeah, we, I don't know if I want to get into explaining Lacan today. Um, but it's the other, um, big other, little other. Uh, I'm not getting into Lacan today. I don't. I don't have the time or the mental wherewithal to jump to a Lacan at this point. <laughs> oh, Deck Aaron, I have so much to respond to that, but I'm not sure I can right here. I have so many questions. Does anyone here want to try to explain Lacan at all? I don't think it's worthwhile for this, but I think this is a fairly crisp thing that they're talking about here when they start talking about the structure of representation on the other side. And the other side is this molecular, as they've been talking about it. Um, They're making the conversation again, uh, pulling us back. We have the mythology the objective representations on one side, desiring machines on this. In the middle, we've had the stage inserted and the structure of this that has been inserted for us. Uh, Lacan, 
saw that there's more there's there's other other shit there and went oh wait uh ooh, over here and i did some things with it but the reverse side of the structure is what lacan discovered with the little other the big other um uh the way that it plays uh, as they say schizophrenizing the analytic field instead of oedipalizing the psychotic field which is a really fascinating setup um the the little o as machine um the reflection of self is the little o the other um it's an image of you uh ego wise uh big other is uh the grand other that is uh fully its own subject fully a, a being a thing and uh mediates relationships things have with you uh with your subjectivity um was that big a little a no no big uh big and little o that's uh, related to uh sartre's um idea of the other you know always in relationship with the other things and and then the other as other human beings um little different uh, for Lacan. Uh, I would say closer to more of a dispossessed god or a panopticon. Uh, the big other is a semblance of superego in that it is a not the all-seeing eye, but um, the, the law, the father, uh, things like that that play into this absolute alterity and otherness uh, that right. is sort of seeing and, again plays with and sort of conforms your re interactions with other items, uh, other things in the world, other symbols, uh, their relationship with you. Uh, that's a, that's that role. There's the, the little O is more a reflection of yourself and others as specular image um, of things um, of you. That's a, it's a shitty des description, but that's okay. Yeah. Also has uh, also, um, uh, use the word God as to, as a kind of representative of the big other, uh, the other that uh, we ultimately want to identify and become at one with, but um, cannot because we are, you know, the forged self. And in order to be authentic, you know, you won't, you don't want to do that. Uh, but yeah, I think it's uh, identify with the big other is a kind of uh, a kind of um, impossible or. Or Sartre, inauthentic, you know. That's not far from Lacan. You don't really, you never really identify with the big other. Uh, but your world is mediated through the fact that the big other is sort of watching you, I guess. Uh, the, the, the idea, the awareness of the subject, the other that is keeping eye on you, changes how you interact, um, to put it simply. Uh, again, I have secondary knowledge. My reading of Lacan is not as strong as some other people's. At the same time, though, uh, the Lacan is also su suggesting that we identify with the with the big other at the same time that we are constantly, um, you know, attempting to but fail to. You know, um, there's a kind of in that symbolic order, you both are uh, identifying with a big other at the same time that you're striving. To, you know, to get well, like, like language, language is part of the big other. Uh, with, with Lacan, uh, you enter into language all at once. 
the presumption when you enter in the language and when, when, once you do that is that language can be spoken and that belief that it can, that I'm able to do uh, and say words that you're gathering that's necessarily involved with the big other language by by nature is involved with that with lacan and so symbolic connections between things my relations to any some symbolic essence is mediated wholly by the big other so yeah that's a fuck there's a lot that's okay that's okay this is a not a terrible place for us to to stop actually um uh does anyone want to jump in and say hello to give some thoughts, give some responses of things that have been happening here? Uh, any readings today before we exit out and uh, close out the reading for the day? Well, I'm going to assume that's a no, and I'm going to say thank all of you for joining us. Next week, we will be continuing from the bottom of uh, 309 uh, footnotes with, with Ekrits in it. That's how you know you're in a really fun part. Um, as we continue the discussion from Lacan, uh, Serge Leclerc, and the real, um, and representation in their general critique. Uh, thank all of you.